0: Genesis chapter 38 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. And we're going to be looking at the life of Judah. Uh, well, not his whole life, just an episode in the life of Judah. Uh, it's a passage that maybe you've read before and have struggled with. I will be honest with you, I have read this passage uh, on several occasions and struggled with why in the world? It, it's, it's a different it's a different thing than what happened with Dinah a few weeks ago, as we talked about um, uh, abuse and assault. But it's one that kind of raises the question, and so, so I want to read the passage in its entirety today. Um, and 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 as I read it, I'm going to ask you to do something very difficult. I, I I want to ask all of you to to pull back from um, 21st century. Christian thought, as we approach this passage, because it 's going to be paramount in looking at what 's going on in the context of the book of Genesis and in this, and so in, in this specific narrative, so that we can kind of see why is it here and what do we do with it today. As Christians. So, so, so we're not going to impose a necessarily uh, 21st century Christian America worldview on it. We're going to pull out from it what, what, why it's there and then see how all that relates. Okay, so, so you you're tracking with me there? Nod means yes. Okay, good. Genesis chapter 38. Let's read together. We'll to read the entire chapter uh, and then start breaking down through it. It says this, it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain, a certain Adamalite, whose name was Hira. Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Ur. Now she conceived again and bore another son named, and named him Onan. She bore still another son and named him Shelah, and it was at Kezib that she bore him. Now, Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother ona knew that the offspring would not be his so when he went into his brother's wife he wasted his seed on the ground in order to not give offspring to his brother but what the what he did was displeasing excuse me displeasing in the sight of the lord so the lord took his life also and tamar said excuse me and judah said to his daughter-in-law tamar Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went in and lived in her father's house. Now after a considerable time, she daughter, the wife of Judah died. And when the time of mourning ended, Judah went up with his sheep shearers at Timnah. He and his friend Hirah the Adamalite. And it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat at the gateway of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had her covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, come, let me come into you. And he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said to him, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from my flock. And she said, moreover, will you give a pledge until you send it? He said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. He gave them to her and whipped into her and she conceived by him. She arose and departed, removed her veil and put on her widow's garment. And Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adamalite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand. And he did not find her. The Adamalite asked the men of the place, saying, where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Anaim? And they said, there's not been a temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. Furthermore, the men of the place said, there has not been a temple prostitute here. And Judah said, let her then keep them. Otherwise, we will all become a laughing stock. After all, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed. Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot. And behold, she is with child by harlotry. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she went to her father-in-law and said, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. She said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. Judah recognized them and said she is more righteous than I inasmuch as I did not give her my son Shelah and he did not have relations with her again. And it came about the time that she was giving birth that behold there were twins within her room. Moreover it took place that while she was giving birth out of uh, one put out a hand and the midwife took it and tied her scarlet thread on the hand saying this one came out first. But it Came about as he drew back his hand. and Behold, his brother came out. And he said, what a breach you have made for yourself. And so he was named Perez. Afterwards, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand. And he was named Zerah. Let's take a breath and pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word. For what it teaches about us what it reveals about you, what it shows about your plan to redeem, and, and the circumstance in which you saw fit to bring your son Christ into the world to help us see clearly things that may be confusing, things that may confound us, things that may leave us scratching our head, wondering in bewilderment. But Lord, ultimately what we see is that the cross of Christ Still bewilders us as to how you would love us enough to suffer and die that we could be free and forgiven. Lord, we love you. We love your word. We love your truth. And we ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right. We have here a very significant passage of Scripture. We have here a very confusing passage of Scripture. So let me just take a step back and and address anyone who may be visiting with us this morning. I am committed to what we would call text-driven expository preaching. That means that I'm just going to preach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, page by page, passage by passage, and not skip over difficult things as much as I find it a whole lot easier to do. Because I believe that we grow healthy in our faith, we grow healthy in our relationship with Christ as we are exposed to his word, as we wrestle with it, as we look to one another and we look to truth. And, and, and I believe that we, in and, 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 and no other time in our nation, in our country's history, is it imperative that the church be healthy, that the church be strong, and the church be able to talk about difficult things in, in the public eye. And one of the more difficult things to, to address, even within the church, is the idea of justice and social justice. And what we find in this passage of scripture is ultimately God's care and social justice matters. And I know you're thinking, wait, wait a second, where, where are we going with this? Let's jump in and let's break it down and let's talk through it so that we can wrestle together and grow in our understanding of who he is, okay? So we start off and we have Judah's son and the promise that was made to Tamar. We we see here in this passage of scripture that Judah has left. Remember Judah, we talked uh, last week, Judah was the one that cast the deciding vote to sell Joseph to the passing Ishmaelites. He was kind of already one of the bandits of Jacob's family, one of the bandits of Israel. He thought specifically about himself. He thought specifically about his plight and he thought specifically about how he could capitalize on certain situations. That's who Judah was. He has moved out of the family home. He has moved on and it says there that he departed from his brothers and visited a certain Admonite whose name was Hira and there Judah met a Canaanite woman and took her as a wife. In spite of Israel's commands, in spite of Isaac's desire, in spite of Abraham's direction, do not marry the Canaanite women. He said, you know what, I'm going to go this path. The same path as Esau. The same path as Ishmael. The same path that stepped away from the family. And there he has two sons, Ur and Onan. We know a couple of things about these guys. Specifically, they weren't good dudes. As was the custom, here Judah finds a wife for his son. He goes to Tamar's family, pays what they would call the dowry, and secures her to be the bride. But look at what it says in verse 7. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil. So evil that it says the Lord took his life. Now, unfortunately, we do not know what the heinous and grievous sin of error was. We do not know how he erred in his ways. You like what I did there? And so he comes in here and we find that he suffers the same fate as the world in the flood of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah in the time of Abraham. The only two times that God has rained down just judgment in such a way that would take life happened with Noah and it happened with Sodom and Gomorrah and then it happens with Ur. He was evil. And that brought in what we would call a situation of leveret marriage. Now, leverant marriage was a, was the case when you have brothers and one of them passes away, brothers, and one of them's married and he passes away without having any children. We don't know specifically if it was fully codified or in law or if it was just the common practice in this day, but over in Deuteronomy chapter five, 25, this is what we find. It says, when brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside of the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her to take her him to her excuse me to take her to himself as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out of Israel see this was the law this was the code Because what they understood was this woman was left without a husband and was left without a child. And therefore, because of civilization and because of society, she would be stricken as poor. She would be stricken as impoverished. And she would would basically be left to one of two paths of life. Being a beggar or being a prostitute. Because there would be nothing to provide for her. And so the leveret marriage was a system in place to ensure one, progeny for the deceased brother, but two, protection and provision for the widow. And so here in this passage of scripture, Judah tells Onan, go to your brother's wife and do what you're supposed to do. Give her a son. And it says there that Judah says says this, do your duty as a brother-in-law. But Onan, verse 9, knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into her, he would spill his seed. He would waste it on the ground. See, we're, we're prone to think of this in, in, in a in a linear pattern and to think that this is a one-time thing. That one time he went and, and had sex with this woman, he did not complete the action he was supposed to complete. But the language that the Hebrew uses shows that this was actually a habitual thing, that he would go to her for sex with no, no, no um, consideration to who she was and what she needed in life. In other words, he was enjoying all the the benefits of the relationship without taking, to her, taking her to himself as a wife the way he was supposed to. He just wanted the pleasure and the fun. He wanted what we would call sex without consequence, sex without responsibility. And it runs rampant today in our society. And it's getting easier and easier with handheld devices and tablets to enjoy the pleasure and the quote unquote benefit of sexual relation without the responsibility that is attached to it. He says, you know what? This is about me. I'm not getting a son out of this. I don't care what happened to my brother. I am not going, I'm going to deprive her of what is rightfully hers in order that I can still have my fun. And God said, you know what? This is just as wicked as what your brother was doing. And look at there, verse 10. What he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life also. You have Judah, you have two sons, you have one woman. And Judah says, you know what? I'm not giving you my third son right now. See, the language that Judah uses kind of leaves the door open. Notice with me what he says. He says, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. But it was because he was afraid that this man, his son, might die as well. He kind of had this thought that she was a cursed woman. That, that, that she was what we would call the black widow. That, that no one survived the, the relationship with her because now two sons are gone. And he was more concerned with keeping his own offspring than he was with fulfilling what was rightfully her to care for her as a widow. Notice that there is no promise made to her. Just remain a widow until he grows up. No, I'm going to send for you. No, then you can have him. He's a little bit young. Man, I don't know how old these kids are. Maybe he's like 12 years old. Like, hey, give him four or five years to grow up. And then once he's 17, 18 years old, I'll send for you. No, there's no promise. It's just remain a widow. And the responsibility is left open. But then Tamar encounters Judah at a very high price. Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, passes away. He mourns for her, and as a herdsman, he would have time where he would go to shear the sheep. So that way, they could sell the wool, and he could make he could he could earn his living. And apparently, Timna was the place where you did this because um, you know it wasn't that he had a shearing barn out back like, All right, time to shear the sheep. Apparently, there were professional sheep shears, and they would do this around a festival time. And you're asking, how do you know they do this around a festival time? Because of what plays out. He's on his way, and she hears Tamar hears that. Judah is on his way there. And so she's thinking, you know what? You you didn't fulfill your promise to me. You, You have neglected my rights. You have neglected what is mine. This is injustice towards me, the widow. And so she disguises herself knowing that he would never... Uh, understandably, knowingly, enter into a relationship with his daughter-in-law. Furthermore, it would, for him to know that this was Tamar, it would further indict him on the fact that he had failed to provide for her as the father-in-law would because he paid the dowry. He, he secured her. He took her from her father's house in a way that would say, my family will now be your provision. So she's covered herself with a veil. Notice she doesn't start anything; she's just there. And Judah does not mince his words. There's no small talk. He turns to her and says, "Let me have sex with you." Just going to put it in modern English: "Let me have sex with you." She doesn't demand a price. She says, "Okay, well, what's it worth to you?" He offers the goat. She can see he doesn't have a goat. He was going to shear sheep. You don't shear goats. Well, you don't have a goat with you. So how do I know you're good for your promise? What's what's the down payment here? Well, what should be the down payment? (laughs) Notice what she says there. Let me take your family ring. Let me take the cord. Let me take the staff. The stuff that you cannot in any other way be construed as belonging to someone else. And he goes into her, as the Bible says she conceives, and he's on his way. In our 21st century Christian ideal, we see and are prone to think of Tamar in a way that the Bible does not present her. We think of her as acting in deceit. We think of her as acting as as a harlot. We think of her as as going outside of the bounds. But ultimately, what, what she has just done is gone to the full scope of what the Leverett marriage would be. You remember the story of Ruth and Boaz? Ruth, in the book of Ruth, she is the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Naomi has two sons, the sick one and the um, the weak one. Those those are their names. If you Achilleon and Malon, they both pass away. And, and, Naomi is going back home because she's widowed. Her son's passed away. I mean, her husband's passed away. Both of her sons passed away and and Orpah and Ruth are going to travel back with her. But Naomi says, look, you go, you go on back home because I'm, I'm an old lady. I can't give you another son. And what are you going to do? Wait 20 years till he gets old enough to be married. You're going to waste your years. Go back home. And Ruth says, no, no, I'm going where you go. And so so they get home. They get back to the homeland. And, and Naomi says, you have a kinsman redeemer here. His name is Boaz. Go to the threshing floor and he will take care of you. But what Boaz understands when he realizes that, that Ruth is the one that he should redeem, he says, no wait, there's one that's even closer. So he starts with the closest kinsman redeemer and then works himself to her. See, Onan was the closest. He was the next brother. Shelah would have been the next brother. But since that was not the case, then Judah is to become the redeemer. And he's failing his responsibility as a redeemer. And so Tamar says, I'm going to give you the responsibility. I'm coming to you. It's not that she's acting out of the bounds of what was rightfully hers and who she was. But then Judah finds out. Tamar's pregnant. Notice that happens. He, he thinks he's done the right thing. I've turned and I've had sex with this prostitute and I'm not going to get caught in it because I'm going to uphold by sending the goat the way that I was supposed to. I've come over here and had, remember Onan? I've had sex with no responsibility. Well, she's not here. There's not, not been a cult prostitute here. See, it's around a festival time, the shearing of the sheep and all the festivals. So all these these acts, these, these sexual acts as part of the festival were common in ancient times. Common all the way into the time of the early church. And here, he thinks he's done the right thing. Until he finds out, Tamar is pregnant. Notice the words that he uses. Verse 24. Bring her out and let her be burned. Now I know Judah had no idea that Tamar was the veiled woman with whom he slept at, with at in I am. I get that, but you see the double standard there. I can go and have myself a prostitute, but woman, don't you better step out of line. I can have all the sexual license and liberty I want, but not you. And the same thread of lie runs into our culture today. 20 years ago, I can remember sitting in a locker room uh, between gym class. And I can remember, I can remember the guys bragging about the number of girls that that they had slept with. And this girl will let you do this and you can do this and you know, she's easy and she's this. And, all, and they're just running, man. They're running with it. But then there was one guy that was in that room that I remember distinctly finding out that one of the other guys in there had, had a relation with his girlfriend and he found out about it in the locker room. And even though five minutes before he had been bragging about other girls he had been with, all of a sudden she is the one that's the issue. That's the same lie. Tamar, don't you dare step out of line. But I can go and have myself a prostitute. I mean, my wife's dead, so that's okay. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm good with it. Until Tamar says, the, the man who went into me, this is his stuff. And I know what you're thinking. I I know you're asking, Evan, are are you grasping at straws with this? Are are, are you grasping? No, Tamar's vindication says it all. Notice what happens here. It says, it was while she was being brought that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah is standing there, I'm just picturing him, just completely befuddled, jaw dropped, staring at these items and asking the question, how in the world did this happen? But the response he makes is this, she is more righteous than I. That statement alone tells me that we have to pull back for just a few minutes from everything that we have culturally been taught in the church about a proper sexual ethic. Because we do not operate in the societal bounds of leverate marriage. We, we don't. And and, and so it's hard for us to understand the actions that Tamar would take. But she did not take actions that were not legally and rightfully hers to take to secure as a widow an offspring for her deceased husband, the first one, uh, the one that actually took her as a wife and to have her needs met and provision made for her. And Judah's response is, she has acted in righteousness and justice, and I have not. That's hard. That's hard for us to think of it that way. That's hard for us. Hard for us because like, wait, they thought she was a prostitute. Well, prostitutes in this day did not veil their face. They didn't. They went with open face. That's how you knew that they were... Pro- That's why the book of Proverbs speaks about the wayward woman and how wily and brazen she is, that she would go out with an uncovered face. So, so, so what do we do with all this? I mean, here's Tamar. Now she has two sons, Perez and Zerah, the red one and the breech one, the one that pushed his way to the front and the, and, and the one who was supposed to come out first. And, and we have these two sons, and, 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 and what do we do with all this? How in the world is this related to the gospel? You're thinking, all right, Evan, what kind of leaf are you about to make now? How is this related to the gospel? I believe the point of what we see in this passage is that a faithful gospel witness, a faithful and consistent gospel witness demands that God's people address injustice I am convinced that one of the greatest weaknesses of our confession of faith is that it does not have teeth in society I am convinced that one of the reasons the world does not want to hear the hope and peace and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that we offer and we proclaim is because they've not seen it acted on when it really matters and it affects people's lives. And I know, here, I'm not a social justice warrior, okay? Okay. I just want people to know that you get on there and you see I mean everything what what brand of toilet paper you use and and, and these people they use this toilet paper and that toilet paper company you know they 're poisoning trees over here in, in south Africa somewhere i don 't know not everything is a social justice issue. Some people go and they look for social justice there 's no social justice for the whales i 'm sorry. There are no social justice for the trees. We're talking about image bearers and and things of injustice that affect those that God sent his son for whom to die. And when it comes to that, the witness of the gospel says that we've got to show that we mean what we say, that Jesus loves the little children, that Jesus loved the whole world. God so loved the whole world that he sent his son to die. But we don't love the people across the street. We don't love the people that vote differently, that look differently, that that live differently. We, We don't respect that God created all of us with the same dignity and our choices may be wrong, but that doesn't mean that we don't love people and fight for their rights and justice in their life each and every day. A faithful and consistent gospel witness demands that we, God's people, those that have been claimed by the cross, those that have been presented with true hope and true peace and true joy, offer that to everyone. And and so there are four quick things I want to just kind of pull out of this. And and if, if you've been with me for a while, been here two years now, if you've been here over these last couple of years, you know I don't quote a lot of people. Um I, I, I know pastors that are very, very effective and and really, really good at you know streaming together about seventeen different people's quotes on a passage of scripture and an interpretation. And every now and again I try to pull those in. And and that's great, but I, I, the quotes I'm going to be making are straight from Scripture, okay? So, so as we go through these four points, I'm going to be backing them up. I, look, here, just so you know, I got myself a little cheat sheet here. So don't think, man, Evan's got all these passages of Scripture memorized. No, I'm going to be reading them off of something I've taped inside my Bible. So that, so that but I want you to jot these down as we go through because I want you to go back and, and read them for yourself and think through them. But the first thing that we've got to understand is that God places a high priority on responsibility. God places a tremendous uh, uh, priority on responsibility. One of my favorite songs when I was in high school was by uh, an old... uh, Christian-esque punk rock band, MXPX. And it was Responsibility. It said, Responsibility, what's that? Responsibility, not quite yet. The whole thing was like, you know what? I'm not ready to be responsible. I just want to be a teenager and live the life a little bit longer, even though these guys were like 30 when they wrote the song. "Um, I want to be, I don't want to grow up. I just don't want to have to have the responsibility. But the gospel and the word of God continually puts responsibility high on the list. Look no further than what happens in the responsibility that Judah had towards Hamar, we don't know what Ur's wickedness was, but Onan, once his brother was out of the way, had a responsibility for this widow to provide for her, and instead, he sought to provide for himself. Instead, he sought to find his own pleasure. Instead, he went his own way. The gospel and the word of God, because God places such a high priority on it, emphasizes responsibility. Leviticus chapter five, verse 17 it says, if a person sins and does any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, even though he was unaware of it, he is still guilty and shall bear the punishment. <laughs> That's a pretty strong statement about responsibility. Even if you didn't know, anybody ever been pulled over for speeding, but you didn't know the speed limit was 35 and you were doing 55, Anybody? Yeah, a few of you, yeah. And so so, what happened when the officer of the law approached you with with and said, you know, you realize you're going 55 and a 35 and you said, I'm sorry, I didn't know what the speed limit was. Did he look at you and say, Oh, bless your heart, I'm so sorry. Here, I'm going to give you this sheet of paper that tells you what the speed limit is for the next 10 miles on this road, just so you don't make the same mistake again. I don't, I don't, I don't want you to have to go through this. So, so Is that what he did? I <laughs> know. He said... Sorry, it's posted back there. You just blew past it. Yeah. Even if you were unaware of breaking the law, you were still guilty of breaking the law. And God says the punishment is still there. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 to 19. He says this. The things that proceed out of the mouth, so what you say, comes from your heart. And that's what defiles you. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, Hmm. I thought we thought with our brain. Oh no, it's the motivation of the heart. So evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false false witness, and slanders. These are the things which defile a man, a person. Wow. See, the responsibility that Onan had was a heart issue. The responsibility that Judah had was a heart issue. The responsibility that God placed on you is a heart issue. Romans chapter 14, verse 12. So then, each one of us must give an account before the Lord. Every single one of us. Maybe your responsibility is not quite as big as what Onan and Judah were holding. But God places a high priority on responsibility. Why does he do this? He does it for the second reason, because biblical commands to care for the widow, the orphan, and the poor carry the same weight as big morality issues. The biblical commands to take care of those in need, those that are disenfranchised, those that are are, are severely impoverished, the widow, the orphan, and the poor carry the same weight as big morality issues. Notice what happens here. Tamar, the widow, engages in a sexual encounter with Judah, but she is lauded as the righteous one. Where we today would say, no, that is sexual immorality. That is not your husband you have had an adulterous affair you are a fornicator those are the big see it's easy to throw the big ones out there I mean as badness we pretty much say as long as you're not gay you don't have to commit adultery and you don't drink you're okay we'll put up with the rest of it just don't do one of those three that's kind of those are kind of our leper colonies right But what the Bible teaches more than anything is the care and concern that goes for the disenfranchised and the biblical commands to care for the widow, the orphan, and the poor are as big and carry as much weight as the big morality issues. Here's a few verses to kind of back this up. Uh, Exodus chapter 22, verse 22. I'm going to read a couple extra verses out of this one because I want to read it in context. But the verse specifically says, you shall not afflict any orphan or widow, but This is what the words around it says: If a man, starting in verse sixteen, seduces a virgin who is not engaged and lies with her, he must pay the dowry for her to be his wife. In other words, you can't just have sex with her; you've got to make her your wife. That's a responsibility. So there goes Onan. There goes all of this uh, sex without responsibility. Um, If her father absolutely refuses to give uh, her to him, he shall pay money equal to the dowry of virgins. You should not allow sorceresses to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall be surely put to death. That's a big morality issue, right? He who sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be utterly destroyed. Idolatry. That's a huge morality issue. You shall not wrong a stranger or oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. You see where he inserts that? It's on the same passage, the same stage as these huge morality issues that we don't want to overlook, but the care for the orphan, the widow, and the poor is often what we say. Well, we'll just put those on the back burner for now. I'm not saying that you got to go pay everybody's bills for them, that's not helping anybody. But the care and the support in the area of justice. A couple of other verses that we want to look at together. Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 19 says, Curse is he who distorts the justice due, an alien, an orphan, or a widow, and all the people should say amen. Whoa, that's not going to go very far if you are a Republican. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to call it what it is. That verse specifically says, Cursed is anyone who distorts the justice due. An alien. Doesn't say a legal alien or an illegal alien. An alien. And I'm not talking about UFOs. An orphan or a widow. And all the people shall say amen. I can guarantee you right now. I'm just going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to call it what it is. If I were to walk on the platform at the next Republican National Convention, whatever it is, and read that verse and said, all right, all you Bible-believing Christians that vote Republican, say amen with me. They're not going to. I'm just calling it what it is. In, in, in full honesty, I tend to vote Republican, so I'm calling myself out here. This is a moment of truth for all of us. Because justice does not get tied to a political party. It gets tied to the cross of Jesus Christ. We're going to get to that in just a second. Next verse, Psalm 68, verse 5. A father to the fatherless and a protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. If that's who God is and we are to be imitators of God, why aren't we? Biblical commands to care for the widow, the orphan, and the poor carry the same weight as big morality issues. Verse one, Chapter 1, verse 17 of the book of Isaiah. Learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, and plead for the widow. Let's go New Testament. I know, we're a New Testament church. Let's go. James 1.27, the brother of Jesus himself, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Practice what we preach. That's it. That's it. It goes without saying. I'm not just going to pick on Republicans here, okay? I don't want. Republicans, email me later. I'll cry with you because, you know, sometimes, like I said, I tend to vote that way too, so I'll cry with you. Um, Just because you vote Democrat doesn't mean that you're voting for justice either. Since 2016, since 2016, in New York City alone, There have been more black children aborted than born. That is a cry of injustice. And one political party may lean, a Democrat party might lean more towards abortion, but we've got to look at why. And more often than not, it comes to poverty. It it comes to care for the poor and the needy. We can't say we're pro-life if we're not from womb to tomb from the time that the, 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 the conception is made all the way till that child has a chance to grow and be an adult and care for them all the way through their old and senior age because the other end of this abort them when they're young is don't care for them when they're old because they're no longer productive to society. Justice goes very, very far. And the more we look at politics, the more we see that they're not concerned about justice. They're concerned about money and jobs, period. All right, I'm going to get off that political soapbox for a minute. Number three, the cross stands as God's ultimate answer for injustice. The cross of Jesus Christ stands as God's ultimate answer because what we find in this passage so wonderfully and so beautifully is this woman who was a widow who was given two twin boys Perez and Zerah. And Perez you have to look no further than ten generations to find a man named Jesse whose youngest son David became the king to whom the promise was given. One will sit on your throne forever. And Tamar is one of four women that the gospel record in the line of Jesus because it was through all of this injustice that God says I'm raising up the seed that will be the root of true justice And that's not to say, oh, you're feeling oppressed. Well, just trust Jesus and your oppression will go away. No, that's not what it means. It means if you're feeling oppressed, if you're feeling afflicted, there is one who is your sure advocate that is raising up an army because the cross of Jesus Christ compels us as those that stand for justice. Why? The fourth. The empathy and compassion demonstrated on the cross compels us to stand in the gap for others the empathy and compassion demonstrated at the cross compels our common responsibility to stand in the gap probably one of the most beautiful gospel tool things I've ever seen there's not one specific way to share the gospel okay I believe in conversations that, that, that help us link one another together to hear your story, to hear my story, and what the cross has done. So, some people some people are, are, are very good and rely on on using gospel tracts or a, a program like Faith Evangelism or Evangelism Explosion or Four Spiritual Laws. And those are all great programs. Those are great. But there was one that I saw years, years ago. And it had, it had, had a couple of drawings on it. Uh, on one over here there was like this cliff on this side. And, and, and on that cliff, it said God right at the top of it. Then there was this big gap. And over here, there was another cliff. And, and that was me on this cliff. And there's this gap, this chasm in between us. And, and what's separating, what's right here in the middle, is sin. Because my sin and my sinfulness separated me from God. But, but then the beauty of the cross is it drops right in there with this arm stretch and it creates this, this gap filler to where we could get to God. That, it, it does this amazing thing. And because of the compassion of the cross, where Christ Jesus said, you know what? Not my will, Father, but yours. I'm going to lay it down. I'm going to allow my body to be broken, my blood to be poured. I'm going to allow all of this to happen to me because, Lord, I know that is the only way for these people to get saved, for them to know you, that he stood in the gap because we couldn't do anything for ourselves. We were lost and without hope. We couldn't bridge that. We couldn't repel down one side and climb up the other. We couldn't, uh, we didn't have a crossbow with a rope that we could shoot across and kind of try to get our way over. There was nothing we could do. And he stood in the gap because he was compassionate for us, and as those that are imitators of God, we are to stand in the gap for those who are voiceless, for those who who believe that they cannot speak for themselves. A few weeks ago, I, I, I shared the message about about Dinah and what happened to her, and the message me too if you want to go on our on our website if you weren 't here that day um, uh, I have found out and figured out how to get to certain pages on our church website to where we can see. That is the most viewed sermon I've ever preached here. People have been sharing it and watching it. And it's the most viewed I've ever preached here. Because the message of Dinah is true about how we stand for justice. And since that, I've heard from some of you that have stories when you see something in Scripture, you're able to say, you know what? That, that was me. I, I can speak to that. And see, because of the gospel, we can speak to what it means to live under the oppression of sin and be a voice for those who are oppressed by sin in different ways than maybe we've experienced. Or as it says in Isaiah 43, 49, 13, Shout for joy. O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and he will have compassion on the afflicted. Because of the compassion that he has shown us, we can stand in the gap for those who are afflicted. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18. God executes justice for the orphan, the widow, and he shows his love for the alien by giving food and clothing. Show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. As, as Moses is writing uh, under the inspiration of God and tell them, Look, you remember what it was like to be in bondage, and to be enslaved in Egypt, and you weren't, you weren't there, that wasn't your land, but now you're free. Help people see the freedom. Stand up and speak for them because the empathy and compassion of the cross compels us to stand in the gap for others. Colossians verse 3, verse 12. So then, as those who have been chosen by God holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Folks, I'm not asking you to agree with me on anything politically. Most of the time I don't agree with myself on things politically. I'm asking you, as a follower of Christ, as a co-laborer to stand with me in the gap because I look across Fairburn and I see brokenness. I look at the homes that comprise our church and, and, and I, see, I see brokenness that is being healed. I look at my own life and I see brokenness that is being overcome by the grace and mercy of God and him alone. And I'm asking you to join with me to stand as a voice for the broken because of the one who died to save.